trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hello again, everyone. This is George Mason University President Gregory Washington, welcoming you to another edition of the Access to Excellence podcast, where we discuss the grand challenges facing our students, alumni, and higher education. My guest today has called limiting mass shootings, and I quote, one of the most concerning public policy issues that we face in the United States, and says attacking the problem with science and not fear or speculation is important to mitigating the problem. She is also called evidence-based policing, quote, one of the most important things law enforcement needs to know today. And she has done groundbreaking research on the use of body cameras. This is so important today. Professor Cynthia Lum is a professor of criminology, law, and society in Mason's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. And she's the director of Mason's Center for Evidence-Based Crime Policy. A former Baltimore City police officer, Lum is a leading authority on evidence-based policing, which advocates research, evaluation, and scientific processes in law enforcement policymaking and practices. She has researched and written extensively about patrol operations and police crime prevention activities, as well as the use of technology. In 2020, Lum, who has a PhD in criminology and criminal justice from the University of Maryland, received the Virginia State Council of Higher Education Outstanding Faculty Award. And this year, she was named a fellow by the American Society of Criminology for her scholarly contributions and distinction in the discipline. Her recent book, Evidence-Based Policing, Translating Research into Practice, written with fellow Mason professor Christopher Copper, received the 2020 Outstanding Book Award from the American Society of Criminology Division of Policing. With violent crime on the rise in America's biggest cities, and police reform on the table in many of these localities as well, Dr. Lum is the perfect person to speak with about the nexus of policing and society and how evidence-based policing can help prevent crime and improve citizen trust in the police. Dr. Lum, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Wonderful to be here. Look, the reality is this. When you hear the word Baltimore police officer and professor, the two don't necessarily mix. But when I hear it, I immediately go to the HBO series, The Wire, right? What a great series that was. And I know you've heard a lot about this series in your time since working in Baltimore. So would you say that was realistic? Was that a realistic portrayal of what actually happens there? You know, when I first started in this field and when I was first thinking about joining the Baltimore City Police Department, there wasn't the wire. There was something called Homicide Life on the Street, which was also written, a book written by David Simon, the same author. And it just captivated me. The book was so descriptive about it. After I became a police officer, the wire had come out. And I actually don't like watching the wire because it really makes me anxious, frankly. (laughs) 
of course, a lot of it's television and movies, but there's a lot of realistic aspects of the water as well. And it actually is filmed in places in Baltimore City. When I was a patrol officer, I used to see people filming in East Baltimore, which was the district that I worked in. So um, you actually worked in that district, is that right? Part of the wire takes place in the Western District and some of it takes place in the Eastern District. But yes, I was a patrol officer. My entire patrol career was in the Eastern District, which back then was one of nine districts. It housed, I would say, about a third to 40% of the city's homicides. And in those days, the homicide rate actually is about the same as now, something like 350 to 400 a year of homicides occurring. That number actually declined to something like 200 in the 2000s, but it's back up again, unfortunately. Wow. So you so yes, you started were, in Baltimore City. Yeah. Yeah, I tell you that it was exciting time to be a police officer as well as a scary time to be a police officer. It was a period of time when there was a great deal of violence in Baltimore. And I also later became a detective in what some people might associate as special victims. We focused mostly on physical and sexual abuse of children. And that was, of course, a very rewarding type of work to try to help kids who have been victimized in that way. Wow. So we're going to have fun with this. Look. <laughs> The connection between that and the academy is like a yeah, I mean that's a hard one to make. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to get to so. So, what prompted you to leave the force and get into research? You know, so many different reasons for that. I mean, we could spend a whole day just talking about this. Well, I think the pay the pay is better, right? It's a little bit better. <laughs> We're um, working on that. We're working. On that. <laughs> uh, no, of course, it is definitely better. Part of it is that when I first started in Baltimore, the starting salary for me was about $19,500. It got better over the period of five years that I was in the city working there, but it was more than that. I don't think anybody goes into policing thinking that they're going to become some wealthy millionaire or, or academia for that matter. But I think policing really changes people, especially if you don't have the disposition for it. It really makes you cynical and angry. It can make you prejudiced and it can have an impact on people. The organization, not just the crime and the people that you're responding to all the time, but it's a lot of it's the organization too. And after a couple of years, I went back to school and decided, well, maybe I should think about going back and continuing my degree. And finally, some seven years after I started my PhD, once I finished it, I got offered a job as an assistant professor at a school in Boston called Northeastern University. Started there. And two years later, I spoke to the chair of our department, Steve Mastrovsky, who's emeritus now, but he was the founding chair of our department and uh, got recruited to Mason and have been here ever since, since 2005. Amazing. Amazing. So let's start with the definition. What's evidence-based policing? Okay. Well, evidence-based policing is an approach to policing that suggests that science and research and analytic thinking and knowledge that arises from those things should have at least a seat at the table in criminal justice policy, practices, and decision-making. It's this idea that if the police are going to do something, if they're going to do something to deal with crime or to improve police community relations or to reduce the use of force or to try to address particular problems, that they need to know whether or not what they're doing 
is actually connected to those outcomes that they and the community are seeking. And science, as with all kinds of professions, helps us make that connection between whether or not those actions are linked to those outcomes. Evidence-based policing is not just about generating that science, so what works in doing those types of things, but it's also about how to figure out how to incorporate that knowledge, how to translate it, how to build receptivity of that knowledge into everyday practice, and then how to institutionalize it into practices of the police. You might ask, well, isn't that how things should work? It seems so logical. That, that's not how things work. It doesn't work like that in education either. <laughs> yeah, I, I was about to say, we need evidence-based higher ed administration. We're trying to get science, to that. Yeah, I think science has a role in many areas of our lives, but we're also humans and people. We have emotions and sometimes we believe certain things that may not be true, but we grab onto those beliefs very strongly and it's hard for us to let go of them. In policing, that has been the case for decades. And I think there's a movement, at least since the 1990s, very much similar to evidence-based medicine movement to try to incorporate science into those decisions. And I mean, it's just like evidence-based medicine. You don't want to take a pill or get treated or have a surgery done on you unless you know that that's going to actually help you and not harm you. And so evidence-based policing is that same kind of philosophy. And I would argue that the stakes are just as high in policing as they are in the medical field. The challenge is, is that the motivation to incorporate science and research and this type of knowledge is not as strong as what you might find in the medical field. So there's a TED Talk out there by a fellow by the name of Chip Huff a major with the Kansas City Police Department, who spoke of the shift in tactics that he and his team implemented in one of Kansas City's most crime-ridden neighborhoods. He said they went from arresting people for even the slightest offenses in a quote-unquote zero-tolerance policy to seeing residents as people with individual hopes, needs, and dreams. And he said that alone led to the community no longer to seeing the police as an enemy, and it also led to a drastic reduction in crime. What's your thoughts about that? Well, I think, first of all, the captain is correct in the sense that the science around zero tolerance policies and indiscriminate use of misdemeanor arrests, for example, does not necessarily lead to the reduction in violence as some previously had thought. There's a theory out there called broken windows theory that is underpinning this notion that if you deal with a lot of small problems, you might be able to address bigger problems like a violence and that kind of thing. And we now know from a number of studies that that's not necessarily the case. And also that zero tolerance approaches have harmful effects on police legitimacy, on the way people view the police, and frankly, on people who get arrested, who are impacted by that arrest, whether it's with regards to their employment or their future prospects, or if they're young people, what could happen to them in the future if they have that criminal justice involvement. So the captain is correct about that. And I think with regards to the second portion of that, which is really about meeting people where they're at and trying to understand the community, I do think that that's generally important. But I also think that citizens have very heterogeneous views about the police. People tend to think, oh, that group of people or that neighborhood all dislike the police or all love the police or all think the police should do this, this or this, right? 
And it's not true. This is one issue with the Black community that is certainly not true. There's a lot of variation in views of the police across generation and where people are living and age and all kinds of things. And so I think that while it's important that the police have good legitimacy with people, they also need to deliver on public safety and also help deliver on public health. They can't always do that on their own, but they can facilitate that. And so it's a balance between dealing with crime, which is real, and doing it in a way that's respectful to the communities that you're working in. But the captain is correct in that not everything works that we thought worked um, with regards to crime prevention. You know, they talk about this concept of intelligence-based approach, Mm. crime uh, fighting instead of being reactionary. Is that similar to the evidence-based approach? Kind of. Uh, So some of evidence-based policing, because it's grounded in the ideas of research and analysis and using data, I think many police agencies interpret that as using crime data, using information and intelligence to guide police activities. So for example, mapping out crimes to develop hotspots to then send officers to those hotspots, right? But evidence-based policing is not just about where those hotspots are or who the high-risk offenders are. It's also about what you're doing at those hotspots. You could do ineffective, zero-tolerance activity at the hotspots and have very little effect on crime and also upset a lot of residents. Or you might do a targeted problem-solving proactive approach or a deterrence-based approach that could help reduce crime and not cause the negative reaction by people. Mm -hmm. So evidence-based approaches not only use information and intelligence and data, but it's also about the quality of the response to problems that are identified in those ways. When I talk about policing as an intelligence, uh, a very intelligent-oriented profession, I mean that it's not just about knowing the data or knowing the numbers, right? It's also about applying the interventions that we know are effective to those data, to those things. Because one process might be very effective for one set of crime and a different approach might be effective for another set of crime, right? Yes, yes. You got domestic abuse kinds of things. You may treat it one way. And if you got a fist fight, you might treat that fist fight totally differently. Is that the way of putting it? Absolutely. It's like as if you were a doctor, you're not going to treat all ailments with antibiotic or with a surgery, removing the limb or something like that, right? Policing is, I guess when we approach it in an intellectual way, we're trying to think about how to be as precise as a surgeon how to understand the actual problem that you're trying to get at. Because if you have people getting into car accidents, that's different than if you have people on a corner shooting other people. There are some generalizations that do apply. So for example, police presence can create a deterrent effect, but the level of that presence, the type of approach to that police presence. You mentioned my co-author, Chris Coper here at the university has come up with an approach to patrol called Coper Patrols. And those are a type of deterrence patrol that's like a dosage. You're like measuring out a little bit of a dosage that optimizes the effect while at the same time not overusing police resources. I love this field because there's so much to think about in it. I get it. You can see if you had police 
in a community in plain clothes or in shorts with polos, they might be taken one way. If you have the same police in full body armor, they will be looked at differently. The same police officer, but just the way that police officers dressed makes a difference. This is a perfect example, President. So think about it this way. Evidence-based policing is not about me saying whether or not that what you just said is true. It's more about, hey, maybe if we had officers in soft clothing when they're responding to people in mental illness, does that then calm the situation down? I don't know if that's true, but that's something we certainly can test out and figure out if it's true. Because if it is true, then these co-responder units where the officers are going with the mental health providers, they might put those officers in more softer uniforms than in more regular uniforms or less militaristic uniforms. And so, yeah, that's like one of a gazillion questions that still need research about whether or not police can be effective in the things that they're doing. Understood. Understood. There's so many questions that are still out there. I mean, I hope that more young people become policing scholars, but it's hard to convince folks to become policing scholars (laughs) right now. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about some of the more difficult issues. So according to the Washington Post, there were 189 mass shootings in the U.S. through the middle of May. Yeah, I've been checking the numbers in advance of this discussion, and from week to week to week, the numbers just haven't taken a turn downward. How could evidence-based policing apply to that kind of crime? Because it seems to me that if anything speaks of finding a deeper meaning behind this, finding a deeper understanding behind this, this is it. The simple solution is, and you hear the talking points on all sides, right? The simple solution is, okay, people were talking about defunding the police and the police got defunded and the criminals just took over and now you have more mass shootings. But that's just oversimplistic when you look at how and where these shootings are occurring and why they're occurring. They're occurring in communities that did not defund. Yeah, that's not only oversimplistic, but it's probably incorrect that what people are saying about that. There's a lot there. First of all, evidence-based policing mostly has been applied to everyday types of crimes, people's disputes, assaults, robberies, thefts, things like that. Because mostly it happens a lot and it's regular. So these are things that we can predict. And when you can predict something, you can develop ways to prevent, and we can test those interventions on those prevention mechanisms. With rare events, and that's what mass shootings are, it's a little bit harder because it seems to some folks that these are unpredictable, that just random happen at any time, that there's nothing that could stop them. And in some ways, you are also correct in that The science around mass shootings, unfortunately, seems to indicate, except for the year of COVID, but prior to COVID, the mass shootings were getting more dangerous. They are becoming more lethal and fatal. And some have argued that they've increased. It depends on how you measure mass shootings. But generally speaking, they're not declining. So it is a serious problem. I think it's a very serious problem because it speaks to a lot of bad things that are going on in our society. So can science be used to address this? Absolutely. As with rare disease, we need to think about how these things come to play. For example, Dan Nagan, who's at Carnegie Mellon, Chris Coper and I, 
we put together a workshop through the National Science Foundation, also with the help of Perry H. Guggenheim Foundation, where we brought together the experts to ask exactly this, how can we prevent this? Or if a mass shooting is going to happen, how do we reduce the harm that comes from mass shootings? How do we actually reduce the fatalities that actually happen in a mass shooting? And so there's still a lot of open questions, but Dan, Chris, and I, we wrote a recommendations in criminology and public policy about this, where we talk about five things that kind of arise from the research and the science. One is about staunching the growth of high-capacity firearms and also high-capacity magazines. And these are things, both of which that are responsible for killing large numbers of individuals in very, very short periods of time. The second is these red flag laws that are trying to help identify people who have become or who are immediately dangerous to others or to themselves and figuring out a way how to pull the gun that they own away from them. Because a lot of mass shootings are committed by people who legally own those weapons. Okay? Right. We also talk about that threat detection systems, because a lot of these mass shootings have hints that they're about to happen. And so figuring out systems that can detect those hints better can be very helpful in preventing mass shootings. Also, if a mass shooting happens, the folks on the public health side have argued, and I think rightly so, that certain types of responses can help. If somebody got shot in front of you, you probably don't want to call 911 and wait for the ambulance to get there because the chance of them bleeding out is very high. You're probably better off putting them in your car and driving them to a hospital or applying some kind of tourniquet or some kind of pressure on the wound right then and there, trying to treat it as a first responder or an officer or a citizen who is next to somebody who has been victimized. So yes, it is still a very nascent area of science, but there are people working on this. We have a whole special issue of our Journal of Criminology and Public Policy where we talk about the science behind these things. The science behind mass shootings. Exactly. Not only about how to understand them and about who's committing them and the frequency of them, but also what can possibly mitigate those issues. Well, well, clearly, some of that is the obvious part, right? If we take away the weapons that have a level of lethality with them, but as soon as that discussion starts, people go out and buy more of those weapons. If a political candidate or the local police force or the state starts to talk about limiting those in any way, you see this opposite effect happen, which I find to be very, very disheartening in some sense. It is very political, but I am heartened that the majority of Americans still, even those who own weapons, support common sense gun restrictions. And so there is some optimism there. And I think especially after... Marjorie Stoneman High, the shooting at the high school, young people have really driven the cause of trying to curb this type of gun violence. And I do think that there's some movement there, but yes, it is incredibly political. So we would be remiss if we didn't talk about how the George Floyd case and other high profile incidences of Black people being killed by police how did they change the mindset about how police are interacting with the public? Do you think it has made it easier to do more of the science-based work that you're proposing, or do you think it just makes it more difficult along with everything else? That's a very good question. Well, I think sometimes crises 
can help push reform forward in that it can motivate the police, especially if there's enough political pressure on the police to make certain changes. The question is, what type of changes are they making to address some of these issues? And there's a couple of issues here. One is concerns about the use of force, but the more broader issue is concerns about disparity in the use of force, uh, especially amongst Black Americans. And so I think some police agencies, which are progressive, that really want to change, and there are a number of police leaders out there that really want the police to become better than what they are, and police officers also. I think those folks would be motivated to say, okay, how do we address this? How can we think about what might mitigate disparity in policing? And so you do have, the science in this area is also very slim, but you do have agencies that are trying to think about, okay, if we use training, can we reduce disparity? Can we reduce the use of force? If we have body cameras, will that do that? But you also have for every police force or for every police chief that's interested in doing that, you might have another police chief that takes a defensive mode that says, hey, that's just a bad apple. That's not us. Police are not like that. I think Chauvin is definitely a very bad apple and he's in prison for it. But he also reflects aspects of policing that are longstanding. A good example is what George Floyd was actually stopped for. It was like a minor offense that we don't even know if it's true. He was accused of trying to pass a counterfeit $20 bill. That's a minor offense in which he was killed for. And so that reflects a style of thinking that believes that arrest for a minor offense is going to create some kind of public safety. And so that's what led up to the George Floyd incident. And that reflects a longstanding institutional idea that arrest can create a deterrent effect. We now know that arrest does not necessarily create deterrent effect, right? So all of that to say that while I do think that there are individuals that are really bad, that should not be in policing. I think the bigger issue is that the institutional structures of police, the way that they're doing policing all these years, the way that policing is supervised and trained and developed, that's what leads to some of these outcomes. So to get back to your question, I know this is a long answer to the question that you started with, but I think George Floyd had an incredible impact on policing. It really pushed people to question the mandates of the police, to think about whether or not the police should be responding to certain incidents and not others. But what's still hidden is the entire police organization, what the police are doing, everything down to the nitty gritty about how police are supervised, the choices that they make in terms of their daily activities, et cetera, that are not well understood by the general public. And so when people say something like defund the police or shift all this money away from the police to handle, for example, mental health calls, like could be handled by somebody else. The problem with that is only one to 2% of calls for service involve people in serious mental distress. Most everything else are for things that nobody else is going to deal with except the police. So the realities of policing don't always match what people think about the policing and that disconnect then sometimes doesn't allow us to think about the most effective approaches to curbing use of force or disparity or whatever that's reflected by the George Floyd incident. I get it. I get it a hundred percent. Yeah. It's really complicated 
and it's hard to make complicated decisions in a crisis. Without because, question. Yeah, yeah, because people just want some simple answer, like body cameras or like defund the, the police. <laughs> well, wait a minute now. Body cameras, in mm -hmm. my opinion, simple solution, but body cameras, I think, have helped. It has helped expose behaviors we all knew were there. We all knew were happening, but you oftentimes had no recourse. It was the word of the police officer against the word of the accused. And the police officer always won. The police officer always was held in a higher esteem than the person accused. Whether or not the person accused had a record, whether or not the person accused had committed a crime, I think body cameras level the playing field at least a little bit. I know they're not perfect, but my feeling is that today people feel like they have some recourse. When something happens and there's an officer involved shooting, people can say, well, let's at least take a look at the body cam footage so that we can actually see what happened. And to me, that's much better than what we had. This didn't start happening when the body camera showed up. I can attest to that personally. When I was in California, when a lot of this stuff started coming to the forefront and started happening more and more, I had a large group of African-American students and Latino students who were visibly shaken. They were afraid for what was happening in the community. And we're in California. There are some particularly difficult places in California where this kind of thing was happening at significant frequency. So we brought all of them together and we were sitting talking. And it was a group probably of about 150, all males in the room. And just asked the question, how many of you have been stopped by the police? Traffic stop, just in the community doing something. You were on campus, walking across campus late at night. We just wanted to get a handle on the, the magnitude of the problem in every single hand, every single hand in that room. And this is just an arbitrary group of folk who come together, but every single hand in that room went up. And you don't have recourse without body cam. When students were saying that they were being unfairly or they felt they were being unfairly targeted, we actually used body cam footage to help resolve. And it, there wasn't any shooting or anything that happened in these cases, but we wanted to see if the police were following procedure. In some cases they were, but in a number of cases they were not. And the yeah. use of that body cam footage became then a teaching tool for the police to say, look, this is not acceptable. Here's how you need to engage. And so I'm a big fan of them. So, but I'm really interested in your thoughts. I have a lot of thoughts on this particular matter. We just completed a systematic review of bodywork camera research to try to understand the totality of the research. And there's a great deal of research now out there on body cameras. But I have a few thoughts to offer to you about this issue. One, I think that personal cell phones have played much of a larger role in terms of exposing certain uses of force in the past than body-worn cameras. I agree with that. George Floyd is one of them, but there are so many more. However, having said that, you're right. Body cameras, I think, are for the things that are most egregious in which there is no other cell phone around or nobody's there. It's just the word of one person versus the officer. It really provides that extra story. The research seems to indicate that, and I'm not surprised by this at all, the technology itself is not going to be what's going to bring about reductions in use of force or reductions in disparity in the criminal justice system. It is, as you mentioned, 
how those technologies are actually used. So if a technology like body-worn cameras could be used for coaching, mentoring, for addressing problem behavior on a regular basis, you know, you could use body cameras to audit everyday activities of police or for supervisors to engage with officers that they're supervising on just everyday work that they're doing in terms of a mentorship approach. I think that would be very, very helpful. The research, however, doesn't seem to indicate that body-worn cameras have a strong effect or a consistent effect on use of force. It does show that body-worn cameras are linked to high reductions in complaints, but we aren't quite sure if that's because officers are changing their behaviors and therefore the complaints are going down about bad behaviors, or if that's a reporting effect. So the survey research from officers themselves don't seem to indicate that they're changing their behaviors from body work cameras. I can agree with you that that may very well be the case, but what about when there is a problem, not necessarily a shooting, but when there is a complaint, then the, I guess you would call them either the plaintiff or the victim in that case, depending on how it turns out, but that person does have recourse. They actually can go back. And I'll tell you this, and in some cases, it actually supports the officer. The officer can go back and look at the camera footage and the officer can say, look, what I explained was the truth. The camera footage justifies it. And currently, you have a lot of support. Officers want body-worn cameras. They're highly supported by the police because police feel like that body-worn cameras can protect them against frivolous complaints and other things from community members. I agree with that. And let me just say that while I appreciate that perspective of the police, I don't know if that really helps the relationship between the police and people necessarily, because the police are basically saying, hey, yes, okay, we'll take the body on camera. Why? Because it's going to protect us from your frivolous complaints. And it goes also back to something that you had mentioned before about your own experience with body on cameras. It requires also leadership and supervision to be able to then be in place to look at the body on camera footage, to then do something about a complaint. Some complaints aren't illegal. They're just like, officer was rude to me. It's not illegal, but it's not good practice. No, but I get it. But even that, because you could be rude to one person and that person can take it and the police can be educated out of it. They can be rude to another person and then it gets escalated. Yes. And because that person is just a different person, and engages differently. And so I'm a fan of them. I think they're good. Let me ask you one other thing, because it's an area where I have interests. You're seeing now more and more the use of artificial intelligence, right? You're seeing it being used in facial recognition to a large extent, but you're also seeing it used to help people, to help agencies, uh, law enforcement, figure out where they should be at a given point in time, right? Their patterns of activity that people engage in. And if you have the proper sensors in a region, they can pick up certain activities that could lead to crime. And an AI-based framework can say, okay, the conditions are right for something to happen over here. We may want to have people in this area, right? And so you're seeing AI used in that fashion. You know, and I've seen the positives and the negatives of that where AI misidentifies people through facial recognition and the like, but it is now a part of the science. It's a part of the evidence that's now being used. What's your thoughts on it? 
You know, this is not my area of expertise. However, I kind of have a similar thought about this as body-worn cameras and other technologies that the police can use. Mm -hmm. What matters is how that technology is used, how it's regulated, who has access to be able to use it, what it's being used for. Your question is so timely because in the next issue of Translational Criminology, which is coming out in the fall, we're going to have a feature on this written by Cynthia Rudin from Duke and Sean Bushway. And they talk about how facial recognition in particular has been labeled as this bad thing and it can be inaccurate, et cetera. But it's more about how it's used. And in many ways, the inaccuracy of facial recognition, in order to be more accurate, you're going to have to have more faces to be processed by that system to increase its accuracy. That's right. So I think that like all technologies, the police can use them in ways that advance good policing in a democracy, or it may not do that. And so I feel like and maybe this is just a general statement, but I don't think that we should close the book on AI in law enforcement. I think there are potential uses for it, but we also have to be cautious about it as well in terms of will it generate more disparities in criminal justice outcomes? Will it actually do what we think it's going to do? Can it actually help with crime prevention and that kind of thing? So I don't have like a pro or con about it, but I think the science should speak for it. I haven't done AI-related research relative to this type of technology, but I'm well-versed in AI personally, using it in my own research and other areas. I actually do think it has some promise. The algorithm will only work as well as the data that's input into it. And if there are biases in that data, if there are inconsistencies in that data, there will be inconsistencies in the output. And so it's not a black box deal where you can put a bunch of pictures in and the one that comes out, oh, there's Jim. We got him. (laughs) He did it. The police have to do their due diligence also, even when they get a face, they have to do investigation along with that face. To right. make sure they got the right person and it's not somebody else, right? But it could um, create a bias when you actually get the picture. You're like, okay, well, it looks like him. Yes. But, you know, how many times do you walk around an area and you see people and you're like, you know, you look like this person or you look like that person, and, you know, and people will come to me and say, well, I look like this person here. And if we can sometimes struggle with that discernment. Computers can as well. And so being able to ferret through that is real. And we're going to have to figure out how to do that. I agree with you. And I've done quite a bit of research on technology more generally in policing. And some people think that I'm a pessimist with regards to technology, and I'm not. I just mean that technology is going to be interpreted through frames of the police. They're going to use technology in ways that they best know how. So if the police are reactive, if they're arrest oriented, if they don't care about their relationship with the public, then they're going to take that technology and use it in ways that reflect that approach to policing, right? Right. So it's not about the technology, in my view. It's really about the organization and how it is expressing and doing the mandates that it is assigned to do. Well put, well put. Yeah, and so it can be used for good or bad technology. So as we wrap up here, let's talk just a little bit about 
the Center for Evidence-Based Crime Policy. So you've been around for 13 years. And if I count back 13 years from today, crime in the 2000s in that time period was actually going down. Yes. In a number of major cities going down dramatically. But now, for lack of a better way of putting this, crime is back. And it's back in a real way. So as a researcher, have you seen an increase in funding? Have you seen an increase in engagement because people are looking for solutions or have you not noticed that big of a difference? What's going on with that? Funding is political. <laughs> a lot of government funding is political. <laughs> so Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. I did not know <laughs> that funding is political. Yes, yes. So sometimes I think science, it's a marathon. The evidence-based approach to crime policy really came about at a period of time when we did have what people thought was substantial amounts of crime, and we didn't know so much about what to do about it. And so we have amassed, and a lot of the work that the center has done, that people associated with the center have done, are really key to this body of research. We have amassed research that indicates that when police are, for example, proactive, when they focus on very specific places and situations with problem-solving and tailored approaches, when they do what's known as focused deterrence, when they understand the opportunity and the environmental aspects of a place that contribute to crime or why crime occurs, why people get involved in crime or desist from crime, right? That information is incredibly important and we have to generate that irrespective of whether or not crime is going up or down. Because in the current situation where we do have this rise in gun violence in some places, we now have some body of knowledge that police can use to try to address those problems. The challenge with that is that we are also currently in a period of time where people are very negative with the police being proactive. And so you have this rise in violence. You also have a very strong concern and call for police reform, and rightly so. And so how do you then talk about how, for example, stop and frisk in high gun crime places should be used to deal with gun crime in those places when stop and frisk has carried so much bad connotation because it was used indiscriminately with zero tolerance? So the combination of this high level of calling for police reform in combination with the increases in crime and especially shootings that you're seeing, gun crime, is going to present a problem, I think, generally for society and also for evidence-based approaches that say, hey, we need to try to think about some of these other approaches. But relative to the center, I get that you say funding is political, but in this environment, have you noticed an increase in funding? Are people trying to reach out to you more to do this study or to engage, to help? Because there are people who are earnestly, in my opinion, they're earnestly trying to find solutions to dealing with what's happening to Black and Brown people in the country, to the number of officer-involved shootings and the like, for nonviolent crimes, for traffic stops, so there are people who are trying to earnestly get down to the bottom of that. You've yeah. got to employ science or else you're doomed to be able to find an answer. The answer is not as simple as, well, they were defunded. So crime rate went up, right? I agree have, with you. Have you, seen, have you seen more engagement? Have you seen an increase of research funding in your center relative to that? I would say that 
I can only hope that there will be a massive increase in funding to figure out how we can mitigate disparity in the criminal justice system. And the reason why I say that is because right now we're doing these webinars on research that indicates how we can reduce disparity in the criminal justice system. There's not a lot of research in this area. We have a great deal of research that says that there is disparity in the criminal justice system. Right, but very little on how to fix it. That's right. That's right. So I hope, and I'm on the National Academies of Sciences Committee on Law and Justice, and one of the areas that we are focusing on is through a consensus report and advocacy is trying to increase research in this particular area. And so I am optimistic that this particular administration and also the private funding that's going on right now through other foundations are concerned about this and they're trying to do this. They're trying to fund this particular research. But in general, the funding has not come up as of yet, though. Right now, we're in solicitation season for this administration. So there's a lot of opportunity through the Department of Justice, through private foundations to apply for funding. So yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic, to answer your question, that there is going to be more research generated in this area. And I really hope there is, because this is a very slim area of research, as opposed to the research that we now have on how to prevent crime. There's a lot more of that type of research than there is on how to mitigate disparities in the criminal justice system. I get it. I hope you're successful in going after those funding. And Me too. <laughs> we, will, we will continue to advocate on your behalf and on behalf of our faculty and staff who are doing work in these areas because they are needed. And just like all things, it's just great to know that George Mason is a part of the solution. We're a part of the solution set for the country in terms of helping us deal with this issue. And that comes from your work. And I am really, really happy and just ecstatic that you are here and I have the opportunity to engage with you. Well, I appreciate it. And I also appreciate that George Mason wants to be an impactful university. You know, we are a public university that wants to have impact on public issues. That's important. We're not here just to generate research for our own happiness. We're here to generate research that can be used in the field and figuring out how to translate that research, how to build receptivity to that research, how to institutionalize that research into practice. I think that's what the key issue is. It's not just about doing research for the sake of it. Well, look, I am, like I said, ecstatic that I had the opportunity to talk to you. And I am sure we'll be hearing a lot more about these kinds of issues in the future. This one is not going away anytime soon. And so I look forward to additional conversations and I look forward to great things from your center in the future. Well, thanks, President Washington. It was nice talking to you and I look forward to the future ahead. All right. Well, that will wrap things up here at Access to Excellence. I'd like to thank Cynthia Lum, Professor of Criminology, Law and Society and Director of Mason's Center for Evidence-Based Crime Policy for her time and insights. This is Mason President Gregory Washington saying, until next time, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.